Hello and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new nonprofit fiscal sponsor, which allows us to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available only for nonprofits. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the dash why dash make dash project or go to the donate to why make page on why hyphen make.com welcome to our first podcast of the 2023 season of why make this episode is part one of our in-depth conversation with the artist wendy moriyama wendy moriyama is a furniture maker sculptor and retired educator who resides in san diego california Wendy's work has tackled a wide scope of topics from traditional furniture forms to exploring her Japanese heritage and the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II to the issue of endangered species. As we discuss later in the podcast, Wendy was born with significant hearing loss and cerebral palsy. And at her request, to aid our listeners, we have included a full transcript of our conversation on our webpage for this episode, which can be found on the podcast page of whymake.com y-make.com. It can also be found in the episode notes on Apple Podcasts. Please join us and take a listen to our wide-ranging discussion with one of the more amazing artists in the woodworking field, Wendy Murayama. Okay, are we ready to have a very serious conversation about nothing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be fine by my book. Uh, we'd like to welcome Wendy Murayama to the Why Make podcast. Welcome, Wendy. Welcome to Why Make. Thank you. Thank you for having me, you guys. The question we always start the podcast with is, what is your first memory of making something? Hmm. Well, you know, I can remember when I was maybe four or five years old, my Mom used to bring home these little, uh, like art kits, you know, um, craft kits maybe, uh, not coloring books, but things that you had to like put together. And I remember very distinctly a, uh, paper cutout book where we had to fold them and they were sort of kinetic. And I remember I was more interested in the whole fabrication process versus um, drawing and painting. Although I did draw and paint when I was little, but uh, I preferred um, punching holes in paper and, you know, that sort of thing. So I would say that would be my earliest recollection of... um, making stuff. Right. So you are an active maker. You like to be involved in the making. You weren't a passive maker. Right. Got to be more than just a piece of paper and crayons. I wanted to, even if it meant crumpling paper up or Mm -hmm. um, stabbing a piece of paper with a dollar. Not just making marks, but making holes in things too. Changing the shape of it. Ripping things apart. 
I, I remember um, Nina Croft's stuff too, like working with yarn and string. And of course, you know, back in the 50s, uh, the, the kind of toys that one would get would be very much based on gender. And uh, I never got the little hammers and the screwdriver. I got the sewing kits and the dolls and that kind of thing. Hopefully that changed a little bit now, but uh, I do remember that pretty clearly because I would go to my cousin's house. I had male cousins and they all had these really cool toys that, you know, wasn't made available to me because I guess mom felt like I needed more of a homemaking type kit. What was your first introduction and attraction to to furniture and woodworking? When did that come? Well, you know, if you want the earliest, uh, I remember in sixth grade camp, uh, we, we got sent away to some mountain retreat when we were all in sixth grade, and I really kind of hated it because I hate <laughs> camping and I hate hiking. And, you know, I'm just not into that outdoor thing. But one of the, the most fun things I remember was that we had to find a piece of wood in the woods, bring it back to the craft room and sand it and make it all pretty and and put oil on it. And I remember the transformation of the word once I sanded it and put the oil on it. It was kind of magical. And I think my mom still had this piece of wood somewhere. I think I saw it, I saw it on her dresser a couple of years ago. But anyway, uh, so that would be the earliest memory. But then... My first piece of furniture happened when I was um, 19. I was taking a craft class at a junior college that was in San Diego called Southwestern College. And they had an excellent craft program. And this would be the 70s. So I think uh, craft was really enjoying a huge revival at that time. And so I was taking jewelry and ceramics and the craft class. We didn't really have a woodworking program, but we had a craft class, which introduced us to all sorts of things like batik and textiles. And so that we did a little bit of ceramics and weaving and then woodworking was the final project. And I was really intrigued by the fact that, you know, I was able to use the machines. And the other good thing was that the woman that was teaching craft also made furniture. So it was kind of like, wow, you know, Joanne can work in wood. If Joanne, can, you know, I'm going to learn how to, you know, work in wood. So anyway. I made a three-legged chair that was really kind of organic and kind of poorly made, but <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, there was, we didn't have any machines for doing modest intendance, and she didn't use joinery in her work. It was kind of a 
California thing. We used um, a lot of dialogues, you know. And I think that was uh, inspired by Sam Malouf, you know, who used a lot of dollars to fabricate his furniture. And the dollars were decorative, of course, too, you know. We used contrasting wood for the dollars. And, and uh, back in those days, we were using a lot of leather, too. So I had a leather seat. And uh, it was pretty... Uh, hippie influence work and um, it's funny because uh, I have the chair in my studio now and I keep thinking I have to come out and replace the seat and maybe clean it up a little bit you know but uh, anyway that was my first piece of furniture and that would be uh 1971 maybe seven yeah 71. That's great that you still have it. You'll have to send us a picture of that piece. <laughs> okay. And and if it was truly hippie, Wendy, you would have macrameed the seat. Oh, maybe, maybe. Did you know who Sam Maloof was when you were nineteen? Um, no, I didn't actually. But you know, looking back, I remember thinking, why did I use towers? Oh, and it was screwed together, too, so it was screwed, and the dollars were really there to uh, hide the screw head. Anyway, I didn't know of Sam's work until I went to San Diego State. Uh, I transferred from Southwestern to San Diego State. Now, Larry Hunter was my teacher there, and he was the one that kind of exposed me to a lot of Makers at the time, uh, Wendell, of course, was a biggie. He had a huge influence on California woodworking. But we had some really amazing woodworkers in California, too. Larry Hunter being one of them. And uh, Jack Rogers Hopkins, who I think is greatly uh, underappreciated for his work. He did some massive stack lamination pieces. And I think he, personally, I think he was really the first person to really incorporate stack lamination into furniture. And then I think that Randa started using the same techniques around the same time. But my feeling is that Jack was really the early pioneer for that method of working. Uh, one day I remember seeing a vid- a movie, not a video, but it was a movie of him building a music stand from start to finish. And it was a much different uh, method of construction and stack lamination. That movie was probably made in the late 60s, 57 maybe. But my main influence at that time was Tommy Simpson. Uh, I was really just wowed by Tommy's work at that time. You know, it was so sculptural. And it wasn't really about woodworking. It was more about fantasy forms that one could make. I think all of his wood was made of, artwork was made with, Word, but I think it could have been interpreted 
into uh, paper mache or plaster with the kind of forms he was creating with words. And of course it was all painted. So my first piece of furniture that I did for Larry Hunter was a desk that was very inspired by Tom Simpson. But it was all made out of chicken wire, plywood, and paper mache. And this was in a woodworking class you did that? Yeah, this was a woodworking class. (laughs) And so I think maybe it was like an introduction, and maybe I want to do this this piece, and Larry might have said, well, it would be faster if you made it out of um, chicken wire and uh, plywood, and, you know, you might be able to achieve the form more quickly. So maybe he was trying to, you know, encourage me to create that form with with the little knowledge that I had in woodworking. It was a beginning class. It's interesting how he let he let me do that. If I was teaching a beginning class, I probably would not have said, "Oh, make it out of paper mache." <laughs> but um, in hindsight, I I wish maybe I could have um, encouraged that, but I think I was too. Um, deprogrammed by the time I started teaching. I, I had too many educators that, you know, dictated what woodworking should be and how it should be taught. So what were those first wood pieces you actually created for him like? Well, let me tell you, the assignments that I got was so totally different from what most of us uh, are familiar with. And you have to remember, this is the early 70s. One assignment was to go out into the woods and be with nature and look around and see, find something beautiful that was natural. (laughs) I'm thinking about it now. It sounds so crazy. But anyway, so I found a seed pod out in the woods and decided to make a carved uh, hand mirror that was inspired by this um, seed pot. But that was one assignment. And the second one was um, I decided to make a music stand or a book stand and I wanted to emulate a whale's tail. You know when a whale reaches in the ocean and it dives and you see that beautiful tail coming up. Well, the upper part of my bookstand had a lamp and the tail was really part of that that lamp. You know, looking back, I'm kind of glad I had those kinds of experiences when I was more naive and perhaps uh, a little more open-minded about what furniture could be. There were fewer limitations, if I remember, back in those days. It's really neat to see you incorporating nature into your work already with the whale. I mean, how how prescient is that about work that we're going to talk about later in the podcast? But I think that was one of my most favorite things about living in California was being able to see the whales out in the ocean and go whale watching. 
I agree. Um, talking about California and you know having been on the East Coast for a while, and then coming back to California, yeah, the plants are so different out mm-hmm. here. You know, they're sort of otherworldly with the cactus and you know even the more tropical looking plants that you see. The the uh, the colors are so different, and I think that had a profound effect on my work when I returned to California in in the eighties. I really started flashing that pain around. I was free from the indoctrination of the East Coast woodworking theme. <laughs> let's keep on moving on, and and let's talk about Mickey Macintosh. I think that's the first piece that I saw. Was it the first piece you saw, Rob? I think it was. When I started at Haywood Community College, my teacher, Wayne Rabb, talked about and presented some of your work in his slideshows. I remember seeing Mickey Macintosh and just being blown away, initially not knowing what to think, but then reading into it and finding out the story behind it and you know, I think I tried to make up my own story about it when I first saw it. So what is the story behind Mickey Macintosh? That was made in 1980 or 1981, and I had just graduated from RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology. And I was free, 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 free from from school and from uh, assignment. The Watchful Eyes of Bill Kaiser and uh, Doug Sigler. I felt like oh, I can do anything I do, you know. So I decided that I've always loved Charles Rennie McIntosh chairs. Um, I love the Torback chairs. And I love Disneyland as a kid, uh, you know. Any opportunity that I can get mom and dad to take me to Disneyland was, was just heaven. And one of my favorite memories was having one of those Mickey Mouse hats where you would have the big black uh, mouse ears. I think I have an old picture of me wearing that. I thought to myself that would be kind of interesting to mash up the two things into one piece and so I said why not and I wanted to take two iconic uh, images and put it into one piece and that's how Mickey Macintosh was born. I know a lot of people didn't know but to think of it back in the 80s that I showed that piece to put him in back in 82 or we never sold, and then I went to another gallery. Thirty years later, now there's been a lot of interest in these chairs, and I've sold so many of them just in the last ten years. And so I had established that these would be an addition of twenty-five, starting in nineteen eighty-one. And so slowly I've been pumping out the chairs over the last uh, 40 years. And I just finished the last 10. 
of the edition, which is now in uh, New York City at Iron Company Gallery. When you first came up with the idea, were you trying to achieve a mashup? I hate making chairs, okay? I really hate them. Uh, even now, uh, I have tried to make chairs, and I keep coming up with the same stick figure. You know, it's just hard to break out of that ubiquitous chair form with mm-hmm. four legs and slats and seats. And I just kept drawing it over and over and over again. I just couldn't make any progress. And then I was drinking coffee and I put the coffee cup down and it made like a ring on top of my drawing. And I thought, oh my god, that looks <laughs> So I'm gonna put brown ears in it. That's how that happens, you know? And, uh, that's perfect. It just worked out. It just looks so good. I mean, it's the first time I can say, oh, I love that piece. I usually don't brag a lot about my work. I don't say, oh, this is a piece I made. I love it. It's an amazing piece. But to make American touch chair, that doesn't happen very often, you know. One more question about the Mickey McIntosh chair. You used uh, that industrial Zolo tone finish. Was that inspired by the coffee stain as well? You know, there's not a lot of resources in Smithville, Tennessee, but there was a auto body supply store on the main drag there. That's the first time I saw a can of, um, I guess it's called Zolotone, or I think it was called Spatter Paint time, Truck Paint. I think, and it was made by Napa, and it was black with little red and blue speckles. And I thought it was just a perfect color combination for Mickey Macintosh. Um, you stepped back and you saw that it was basically a black chair, but then you walked up very close to it. You not only saw the red and the Blue, but you felt the texture, so it was smooth. And so that's how I came up with that surface. It was just serendipity that I came across that paint. Interestingly, around the same time, one of my colleagues at that time, who was Ed Zucker, had also discovered that same paint, but he was using it in a very different way. Actually, one more thing about the, I lied. I'm going to ask one more question about the Mickey McIntosh chair. Why do you think the chair wasn't accepted in the 80s, but was much, was accepted much later? I don't really know. I mean, I wish I knew because it was the coolest thing, I thought. But and, I, and it wasn't the price. I remember how cheap it was. I sold the first few ones for 500 bucks. I mean, that, that was basically almost a custom chair back, you know, nowadays. But I guess maybe because it sort of had the vintage reference to it, it just became iconic over the years. Um, I think it took a couple of museums 
to highlight it. I think um, it really helps for the museum to post your work and that more people would notice it. And um, I think one of the first museums who uh, acquired this piece was the BNA Museum in uh, London. And mm -hmm. Glenn Adamson was, was the curator back then, and he was creating a show about postmodernism, which, of course, all took place in the 80s. And so, uh, just sheer luck that, you know, Glenn wanted to utilize that chair for the collection and pushed it, actually pushed it from somebody else who bought it for hardly anything and then sold it for like a buttload of money. <laughs> but I, I finally got my due after a bunch of I was able to sell those chairs at a fair price shortly after that. I hate talking about money, but anyway. It's kind of neat to see that they have a life that is now on to almost 42 plus years. Yeah. So you said you just made 10 more of them for the fall. What's it like making a piece after 42 years? And I know you have made them you know, on the way, but 42 years after the first one, that's great. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting because I've been invited to, to participate in a chair show here in San Diego. And I was like, oh, God, I don't even know why I said yes. But I said yes, and I was back at the same place drawing the same stick chair over and over and over again. So. Finally, just out of necessity, I had to stop and I just started ripping some three-quarter inch square cherry stock and just started making what looks like a ladder, but it's actually a ladder with a little chair stuck on the bottom. And um, for the quest wear, I made what looks like little mouse ears sitting at the top just because I needed to get it done, you know. <laughs> but it came out kind of cute. I mean, it's cute. So I call it Matador because it looks like a little Matador's hat, you know, those little hats that those bullfighters wear. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like a offshoot of Mickey Macintosh in a way. Maybe I'm doomed to that kind of... I wouldn't call it doom. I mean, it's almost iconic now that you, you know, you know that you can incorporate that shape into <laughs> your chairs. Doom, it's doom. I'm doom. Oh, it's not doom. I love that word. I think doomed. your next piece ought That's to be called word. Mickey Macintosh Doomed. And you can riff off of that idea. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Mickey's ears yeah. fall off. So moving along past, <laughs> past Mickey and, and through time. There is a wonderful episode of you on the Craft in America series on PBS, and it is the identity episode. And I think you do a wonderful job in that episode of explaining all of your different identities. And I was just sort of hoping that you would go back and sort of rehash that little piece for us. Well, you know, um, 
uh, born with a uh, hearing deficiency. I'm about 80% deaf, and I also have cerebral palsy, which um, has not limited me too much, but it does affect my motor control. And so, you know, as much as I didn't like referring that as an identity, over the years, in the last 10 years maybe, um, I started to learn to embrace that identity. Um, but in the past, I tried to ignore it and uh, not think about it so much. But then I realized that's maybe not a good idea because people may um kind of noticeable. And I think I should just be upfront about it so that people maybe would feel less uncomfortable with uh, hearing me or seeing me for the first time. And if I can embrace that, I think it makes it easier for other people to embrace as well. Uh, that's my theory, anyway. And then there's the Asian identity. I probably didn't even know I was Asian until grade school when people were asking me uh, if I was Chinese or Japanese, and I would have to go home and ask mom, I was Chinese or Japanese. Uh, or they would ask me if dad knew how to do judo. And, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what I realized. Being Asian was, was a thing. And then, of course, I identify as a being a maker. And that's a huge one for me. Um, I'm very proud to be a maker. I'm very proud to be a craft person. And I'm, I'm fortunate that I have that to, I guess it's kind of a form of therapy, maybe. I don't know what I would do without that skill. So those are my my identities that some are less obvious than others. Oh, and being a woman, that's another one. So on being a woman, you were one of the very first women to graduate with a master's in furniture and design from RIT. Kind of hard to believe, isn't it? I can't even believe that's a big deal now, you know? But yeah, I guess um, there were plenty of other stu female students in the program. They, mm -hmm. they were uh, undergrad, and um, and they said, oh, you know, you and Gail Smith are going to be the first uh, MFA students to graduate from RIT. I was like, wow, you know, okay. But, so, <laughs> yeah, so, so what does this mean? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Who cares anyway? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great attitude to have about it. But I suppose, you know, that hopefully that did pave the path. I mean, yeah, it's like you, you were being an iconoclast without knowing it. Maybe that's a good way to put it. I, I, you know, I was not really aware of that. And it was really funny because after I graduated, there was kind of a slew of exhibitions that 
called uh, Roman Woodworkers and Roman and Wood. And I guess that was a good thing. And I know a lot about the Roman Woodworkers feel kind of ambivalent about that. And I can understand that. I mean, you want to be accepted as a woodworker regardless of whether you're male or female. But on the other hand, you want to sort of prove something. I'm happy to be able to represent, put it that way. But I don't mm-hmm. want it to be the only thing that kind of identifies my work. I want to be acknowledged for what I can do and what I like to do. I suppose that could be a whole discussion in itself. This is the end of part one of our discussion with Wendy Murayama. Please make sure to listen to part two as well. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. Please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the-y-make-project or go to the Donate to Why Make page on y-make.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.